It's Tuesday morning, Pashas Balak, and we just received the terrible, heartbreaking news that our three boys, who we've been davening for and thinking about, and literally, literally banging and knocking on the Shari Shamayim together for two and a half weeks, that they're no longer with us. They were murdered in a savage act of brutality. Subhumans who celebrate death rather than embracing life. And our minds and our hearts are flooded with feelings and emotions. The closer people are, the harder it is to organize them and to deal with them. A few hours in Eretz Yisrael, we'll be attending three Leviathans, which will culminate in one joint Leviathan. But in the back of our minds... And for some of us, I imagine those who are further away from ground zero, maybe even closer to the front of our minds, many are plagued by the question of what happened to all of our Tvilos. Two and a half weeks of rousing Tvilos, I know a lot of the children have asked this question, those who aren't necessarily as emotionally attached to the actual suffering, but who participated actively in Tehillim's, davening, and extra slichos, what happened? What happened to the tefillahs? The experience of tefillah is challenging enough in the modern context. Perhaps one of the greatest challenges of religious experience in modernity. And without concrete answers, without a sense of what happened, where the tefillahs go, where all those tefillahs for naught, many people could lose confidence in tefillah, lose appetite for the experience of tefillah, or chalil v'chalas worse. Obviously, at a time like this, when we're thinking about anything relating to an event that's beyond human comprehension, our first response, as well as to tefillah, is vanachna loneda. We don't know. None of these ideas are concretely, sometimes they're said with too much confidence. On a different front, theologically and religiously, obviously, it requires us to take a cheshbon nefesh both personally and collectively, about our own behavior, that's explicit in the Rambam, that's explicit in Chazal. But when statements like that are offered or asserted with too much confidence and too much precision, the reason that we suffer is because of this and because of that, then of course it's offensive or repugnant and also intellectually vacant. So in general, it's hard for us to put our finger on answers calculations that are clearly beyond human comprehension that Kodesh Baruch himself engages in. We just have to be makabal the din, gzerim l'fanai, ein l'charishus l'hairacharam, as we said in last week's parsha and chukas, Kodesh Baruch issues gzeros. We wouldn't have the right always to try to justify them, try to question them. We try to understand, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Rachel Frankel, one of the mothers those three mothers have been so incredibly, incredibly, uh, the Kiddush Hashem that was created, um, the, 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 the Tzniyos and the pride and the, the, the Midos that they showed was simply uh, indescribable over the last two and a half weeks. And as she said to children the other day at the Kotel, Hashem isn't your employee. Hashem doesn't work for you. And just because you dive in and ask Him certain things doesn't mean that He has to answer. Sometimes His answers are those we don't understand. 
And Baruch Hashem, she said that, and I'm sure, aside from the Kiddush Hashem that she created, she literally rescued thousands of people from potential theological confusion that could come in the wake of dashed tefillos or unmet expectations, unrealistic expectations. So there's a whole chain of issues that are theological in nature about how could HaKadosh Baruch Hu allow something like this to happen? What is our relationship to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? But I want to talk more specifically about tefillos. What happened to the tefillos? How could we daven so intensely, so fervently, <coughs> so collectively? Just imagine for a moment how many times Tehillim was recited over the last two and a half weeks. I know that in my daughter's school, my daughter's in seventh, uh, sixth grade, excuse me, literally in the thousands, the girls in her school took upon themselves to recite Tehillim when it was a daily, daily basis, cycling through Tehillim. Thousands of my daughter's little school out in Gush Etzion, Tehillim was recited a thousand times, or thousands of times over the last 18 days. Who can imagine the calculations and the tallies worldwide? How many tefillos, how many tears were shed? Those who are listening to this year, just imagine the amount of times you cried. Or the amount of times you felt like crying but held back the tears because there were people who needed you to be strong. Or how many times you wish you could have cried. And multiply that by the amount of people that were involved in this process. And we know that a Kurdish Baruch Hu doesn't ignore tears, doesn't ignore tefillos b'tzibor. So what happened to our tefillos? After accepting the fact that we don't know what happened to our tefillos, and we don't know truly the chashbonus of a Kurdish Baruch Hu. What happened to all of our tefillos? Well, first of all, tefillos have an impact. And sometimes it's hard for us to see that impact Sometimes we direct our tefillos towards a particular impact, and when that impact isn't attained or achieved, we feel frustrated. We feel um, plagued or haunted by the notion that our tefillos weren't accepted. Last week's Parsha in Parsha Schukas, we read about a tribe of Amalekim who were residing in the south, who attacked the Jewish people but disguised themselves as Canaanim. And the Jewish people were confused. They saw, on the one hand, people that looked like Canaanim, they, they sounded like Canaanim, but they dressed like Amalekim. So unable to make their tefillos precise because of the confusion of the situation, Rashi says they just turned to Shemaim and they daven and they asked HaKadosh Baruch for help. Sometimes... Our tefillos were confused, and we just asked Hashem in general for redemption and for rescue. Every tefillah sends to Shemayim, every tefillah is considered. Every tefillah has some impact, even minor. It may not impact the precise target or the precise agenda we intended. How many thousands of years have Jews davened fervently for Gula? How many times have they recited And yet we still haven't merited, we still haven't received the redemption we've so assiduously and passionately petitioned for. But it's aggregating, it's accumulating. Each tefillah adds another merit, each request adds another advance. 
some ways those who live closer to Geula have the strength of all those accumulated tefillos backing up or fueling their tefillos. And that's why, ironically, those who are closer to redemption have a more, a greater impact or a greater possibility to affect redemption through tefillos because they are in bare or unadorned tefillos. They're tefillos that are fueled. So the tefillos that Amisrael offered over the past 18 days, all the tears, the kotel, all the song, Every moment that we stood in front of our Kurdish Baruch and Davins, we had a precise targeted agenda. We wanted the return of our three boys safely and soundly to their families, and unfortunately, our Kurdish Baruch didn't grant us that request. But just because that request wasn't granted doesn't mean that our tefillos aren't going to impact some other process, either personally or collectively, hopefully nationally and historically, without question. The Jewish people is closer to redemption today, June, July 1st, 2014, than we were 18 days ago. It's impossible to imagine all the tefillahs that have been offered not making a dent or not creating an advance. So on the one hand, our tefillahs had an impact, not the direct impact that we wanted, but our tefillahs don't simply dissolve pointlessly without any cause, without any influence. Second of all, we spent 18 days through tefillah. And the value of those 18 days of fervent tefillah, we wish we could sustain that emotional energy, that intensity, beyond 18 days. So we stood and we talked with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We talked with the Rabboni Shalom in ways that many of us hadn't talked before we hadn't davened before. Chazal tell us that our emos, the three of our emos, Sarah, Rivka, and Rachel, I'm sure everyone who's lived through the past 18 days can't help but remind themselves that we lived through three modern-day emos, three women who stood at the forefront, as I said before, with such dignity, such a kiddush Hashem, such... Um, such courage, such sensitivity. And we thought about our three emos, or our four emos. But our three emos, and say for Bracious, Sarah, Rivka, and Rachel, were barren, were sterile, were akaros. And they had to daven fervently for children. And they had very few children. Sarah had one. Rivka had two twins. And Rachel had two, one upon her death very disproportionate to the general fertility of Sefer Bracious. Chazal tells us HaKadosh Baruch Hu is mis'ave l'tfilosan shal tzadikim. Hashem craves the conversation, the interaction with righteous people. And he was willing to subject three great women to suffering just to elicit more passionate, more intense, more heartfelt tfilos. Now, there's no question that from a theological standpoint, it's a very provocative and challenging concept. The Kodesh Baruch Hu wants to speak to a human being, desires and covets that relationship. Does it justify human suffering? Is it fair in our terms? As I mentioned before, I'm not addressing the theological questions, but the connotations for tefillah. The Kodesh Baruch Hu craves relationship with us as much as he doesn't need us, obviously, but he loves us just like a father loves a child. 
And for 18 days, we had that intimate, proximate, close feel that we were talking to God. We stood at the Kotel, I stood at the Kotel, literally looking up at the Shari Shemayim, crying with thousands and thousands of Jews. And it was simply, simply unmistakable that Hashem was in front of me listening to my tefillahs. You could arrive at no other conclusion. Chazal tell us that at the Yamsuf, Kodesh Baruch Hu was waiting to split the sea. It was delaying the process until Am Yisrael finally davened. For whatever reasons, they didn't daven in Mitzrayim that frequently, if at all. And based on the Pasuk and Shir Hashirim, Chazal interpret Hashmini Eskolech, Harini Esmarayich, Hashmini Eskolech. I just wanted to hear your voice. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu waited to split the sea so that Am Yisrael would feel the pressure and the tension and speak to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's our second takeaway from the last 18 days. Undoubtedly, our tefillahs had an impact, type of which we can't gauge, we're not aware of. But tefillah is a self-sufficient experience, has its own inner work, and even without the ability to trace or track the impact of a tefillah, we had 18, I can't call them glorious days because they were brought on by a tragedy, but 18 uplifting, inspiring days of closeness with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Right before we begin the period, mourning our Beis HaMikdash, hoping, hoping that this is maybe the last year we'll have to mourn, maybe the aggregate merits of our experience and our trauma will tip the scale, the tipping point to our redemption. The third issue we experienced over the last 18 days through tefillah was an incredible sense of unity with everyone is talking about. It's obvious to anyone. Differences were set aside. Ideologies, ethnicities, levels of religion. Every single Jew felt united. And one of the manners or one of the expressions of that unity was through tefillah. We daven together, differences fade. Tefillah, by definition, is a collective or communal experience. Doesn't accentuate personal differences, unlike learning, for example, which is personal, or chesed, which is personal or communal. Tefillah is a worldwide loss of self and merging into a larger identity. As we recite during Slichos, we gather together during times of crisis to pour our hearts out. Or as Mordechai told Esther, in Megillus Esther, Lech Kinos is or Esther told us, Mordechai, excuse me, gather all the Jews and daven and pray and fast. The gathering which we experienced, the unity we felt, which of course both fueled our tefillah, was a product of our tefillah, is an asset that we're thankful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We're proud of whom we are. And undoubtedly, some of that achdus will fade, some of that unity and fraternity will fade. But even when it fades, we can proceed with a deep knowledge that, when, as we say, when push comes to shove in times of crisis, we still retain the ability to circle the wagons, to recognize the commonality that unites us and ignore the trifles that separate us. And even things which aren't trifles, but to recognize the sanctity of being part of one nation, the sanctity of Kedusha Sisrael, the sanctity of being a Jewish nation. That's something which, of course, fueled the tefillos, 
but also was created by our tefillahs. Number four, of course, not just the actus that the tefillahs created, but a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. Especially, especially, when held up in contrast to the murder, savagery, the barbarism which is engulfing our our immediate surroundings in the name of religion. I spoke about this early on in the crisis. The way in which Jewish people responded, the inward religious spiritual awakening, as I mentioned before, this spectacular, almost indescribable deportment and behavior of the three families, and in particular of the mothers. The discussion was dominated by the celebration of life, by care for innocence, by the desire, the amount of effort that we nationally invested just in terms of manpower in combing through the hills of Hebron, turning over rocks one at a time, trying to discover any traces or leads for these boys. Do you imagine if in any other country a similar hostile act of brutality was committed by a minority of the population? Not one, not one indiscriminate lynching of an Arab. Of course, there are always fringe political factions or fringe uh, groups that will try, but they were very, very marginal, if at all, during this crisis. Maybe they'll emerge now, but it certainly doesn't represent the mainstream. Just imagine, imagine, for the medieval period, <laughs> a group of Jews that kidnapped three Christian babies, three Christian children. How many Jews would have been murdered in a pogrom? How many thousands, if not tens of thousands, were murdered in blood libels? Even when it wasn't true, it was just hearsay and rumors. Imagine in Arabic lands if a Jewish minority had kidnapped three Arab boys. Imagine the backlash. Imagine how convulsive it would have been for the Jewish community. But our primary interest was first and foremost protecting their lives and preserving their lives, providing whatever relief and knowledge we could to their parents, uniting amongst ourselves. 18 days after this event happened, the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in our world has been sanctified by us. And as hard as it is for us to speak in these terms, because we speak about issues we don't know, but at least we should speak with whatever clarity we do possess. This is exactly what HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe when Aaron's two children are killed. Bikrovai Ekadesh. My name is sanctified not just in the day-to-day experience, but when people that are close to me, tzaddikim, yeshiva boys, families, are taken to Shemayim. And Vayidom Aharon, Aharon didn't lash out, Aharon didn't complain, Aharon was quiet. So we weren't quiet over the last 18 days. But we certainly composed ourselves with the dignity and poise of Aaron Akoin. And there's no way that anyone can walk away from these 18 days without that pasuk, front and foremost in their imagination. Bikrovai Ekadesh. Shem Shemayim was Niskadesh. At a human level, we have a hard time understanding why we're asked to be Makadesh and Shemayim at that level. But when we are asked, 
we humbly, humbly perform our tasks. And we don't celebrate the Kiddush Hashem, but we certainly are proud to be Mekadosh Hashem Shemayim. And finally, our Tfilos reminded us going forward of how much gratitude, how much we are Kaddish Baruch Hu. This is always true. Our minds focus on a particular crisis, on a particular trauma, on a particular tragedy. Even in the narrow political sense, and some of these figures were bounced around over the last two and a half weeks, how many kidnapping attempts just in the last year were foiled? How many rockets just in the last year were hurled at our southern cities? Sometimes it takes an event of this magnitude, and of this trauma, to remind us of how often our tefillahs are successful, either at a personal level, of course, and in this case at a historical national level. We can never lose sight of the specific just based on the general tally. We ask and expect the Kaddish Baruch Hu to be there for us in total, not to round the edges and say, well, this one failure, or one not failure, but one lapse in trauma, and we can justify that, but we're not discussing theology. Those are larger questions. At an existential level, just imagine how impactful our feelings are. Look at our surroundings, see how people are literally eating each other alive, murdering each other mercilessly. We've built an island, small little island, very vulnerable, hostile, maniacs aligned on our borders, butchers, murderers, hell-bent on spilling our blood. We're seen in their eyes as cattle aligned for slaughter. And every day, HaKadosh Baruch intervenes. Now that we're back in our land, HaKadosh Baruch intervenes, even if it hasn't led to our real yearning for Gula Shlema. According to many commentaries, when we recite Gaal Yisrael, Baruch Hashem Gaal Yisrael, in the end of Kriyashma, before Shmon that refers to our ultimate Gula. But in Shmon when we recite Baruch Hashem Goel Yisrael, in the Bracha of Re'inavi Yenu, that doesn't refer to the ultimate Gula, but the installments of Gula that we've received over thousands of years. Just don't think about living in the state of Israel today, especially those who aren't living and are listening to this year. But think about the last 2,000 years. How many times Hashem redeemed us? The miracle of Jewish history. To march through the last 2,000 years as we did, facing such hostility, such anger, such brutality, such savagery. And we survived for two reasons. We survived because of the courage and the fortitude, the faith, and the commitment of our people. And of course, Kachukarish Baruch was always there for us, answering our tefillos steering our path, even when you find yourselves in the land of your enemies, I won't despise you, I won't contempt you, I won't annihilate you. So it's a tough, it's a very difficult moment in Israel and abroad. But these are some of the ideas we have to keep in our minds, in our hearts, most all the other emotions we're feeling. What happened to our tefillos over the last 18 days? Just to summarize, after, of course, acknowledging that we don't really know. Number one, our tefillos have an impact without question 
They're just not aware. We can't laser target our tefillos and expect precise agendas to be fulfilled. We spent 18 days literally in conversation with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We spent 18 days davening together in ways that were unimaginable beforehand. We spent 18 days creating and witnessing HaKadosh Hashem, and that's why we were put on this earth. And the last 18 days reminded us of how often our tefillahs are accepted. Prince Hashem, the land of Israel should be filled with joy. No more blood should be spilled. Our land should embrace their children. Hashem shouldn't demand any other price for our return to Eretz Yisrael. And in Mirz Hashem, one day, Kodesh Baruch Hu will avenge the blood of his martyrs, Hashem Yikom Damav, Hashem Yikom Dimehem in this case. And Mirz Hashem, we'll one day stand, we'll stand with them in Yerushalayim, witnessing the base of Mikdash. And standing with them, embracing and welcoming the return of the Shekhinah.